Good morning. If you have your Bibles, you want to turn to Romans chapter 1. Romans 1, 18 to 23, as we continue our series of texts and topics that are not always well understood. Let's go ahead and ask God to guide our time. Father God, we thank you for the opportunity that is ours to look at texts and topics that are not that talked about, not that prevalent, or perhaps have often been misinterpreted and misunderstood. Father, we believe that your word is inspired, it is inerrant, without error, and we ask that you would shape our minds, our hearts, our thoughts, that you would allow us to know what is right and true and to act accordingly. Father, we ask this today in a difficult text from Romans 1, 18 to 23. Guide us, we ask. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. One of the Bible verses I'm trying to teach my 20-month-old granddaughter is John 14, 6. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. It's a declaration that salvation is only in Christ. Acts 4.12 is similar. It says this, And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to man by which we must be saved. Similar, 1 John 5.12 says this, Whoever has the Son is life. Whoever does not have the Son does not have life. And I'm willing to bet this morning if I were to ask how many of us believe that salvation is only uniquely, solely in faith in Jesus Christ, many of us, the majority of us, would raise our hand. We believe this. It is something that we've been taught. It is something we see in Scripture, and we readily affirm it. But I wonder if we went a little deeper and we said, well, what about the fate of the unevangelized? What about those who have never heard the name of Jesus, who have never heard salvation by faith in Jesus Christ alone? What about them Will they spend a crisis eternity separated from God in a literal place, an eternal place called hell? I wonder how we might respond. It's not arbitrary. The sixth value of our six values at Highland is that people matter to God, therefore people, all people matter to us. And we rightly wonder and our hearts are tugged by those who have not heard the gospel. Now, it's not a large part of the world, frankly. It's about 3.5% of the world that really has no gospel witness written in their native tongue. And we'll talk about that in a moment. Now, I've had the privilege, perhaps like some, to have traveled to many countries in the world. The vast majority of the countries that I have traveled to have access to the gospel. They have access 
to the knowledge that salvation is in no other name but Jesus, faith in him alone. Now they may repress that, they may suppress that, but they have access to that. But I think once or twice I've been to a place in the world that has absolutely no gospel penetration. The first time I remember this was 25 years ago. It was in the convergence of Eritrea, Ethiopia, and what at that time was a unified Sudan. At the convergence of those three spots is a village, and I was told by the missionaries that I was accompanying that we were probably, certainly in modern times, the first opportunity for the gospel to penetrate that village. I don't know if that's true or not. That's what I was told. But I do know this. When we got out of the car, I was swarmed. It was like 12 or 13 people deep to move. We kind of moved like an amoeba as a group. And they would touch me and, and poke me and prod me and pinch me. They had never seen such a white boy with red hair. They weren't sure I was alive. They didn't know what I was. And so they were all trying to, to touch me. And the question I have to ask is this. Prior to us being there that day, some died. Did they spend, are they spending, a crisis eternity separated from God in a literal eternal place called hell? Or is there some other kind of dispensation for them? Before we answer that question, let me just go a little further. Some of you know the organization called InterVarsity. It actually means between or through universities. It was actually founded in Cambridge in 1877, came to the United States in 1938. Well, a couple of years ago in Cambridge, which founded InterVarsity, some members of InterVarsity, in a desire to reach their campus for Christ, they took little cards and they printed on them the text that you and I are looking at today. A little bit more of the text, but they printed that on it. Some of Romans 1. And they handed out hundreds of these to anyone, any student who would take it. And then a day or two later... They were called into the Cambridge administration and they were told in no uncertain terms that what was written on the card was offensive. Now understand, it didn't say Romans. It didn't have versification. It was just block print. It didn't identify themselves. And nobody in the administration of Cambridge realized that they were reading Scripture. They were just offended by the words that were written there. It reminds me of what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 1, 18. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to we who are being saved, it is the power of God. Well, I want to pick up and I want to read in our text from Romans 1, 18 to 23. And as I read, I want to make some parenthetical remarks from the text. Listen to God's word. For the wrath of God. We could stop right there, right? We now understand why this text caught the attention of those in Cambridge administration. 
Because even if somebody believes in God, many would define God in unbiblical terms and say God is only love. Is God love? Yes, the Bible says God is love. And he's merciful and he's gracious and he's gentle. But the Bible also says that God has wrath and justice and the like. And so we can understand why an administration not steeped in Scripture didn't recognize this as Scripture, and they were offended because it talks about a God who has wrath. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness. We could stop there. It's a declaration that we are sinners in need of a Savior, that we have violated God's perfect commands in action, attitude, thought, motive, inactivity, we are violators, and we are rightly incurring the just discipline of the Lord. The ungodliness and unrighteousness of man, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth, that is offensive. We're at Cambridge. They don't think of themselves as suppressing truth. They think of themselves as gathering truth. But the Bible says spiritually, we suppress spiritual truth. That is our natural bent. For what can be known about God is plain to them. Some would say, no, at best God is opaque. The Bible says no. Because of what God has created, the natural revelation, the beauty of creation, we should look at it and say, this declares the handiwork and the glory of God. Because of this, I know there is a creator who is worthy of worship. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse because God has revealed himself in nature and we suppress that. God says we're without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creepy things. As you and I begin, I want to just take a, a cursory look and then we'll look at a few things with a little more depth. The first thing we notice is that these verses affirm that all people and all people groups innately know that God exists. It says the truth about God is made plain to them. We aren't born agnostics. We aren't born atheists. We become that in the futility of our mind when we look at the creation and we suppress the truth that there must be a creator. And that leads to the second observation. The creation itself declares the handiwork of God. And as we look at the creation, it should cause us to say, these are the invisible attributes, as the text says, of God, an immortal God who is worthy of worship. And yet we credit natural selection and macroevolution. The second law of thermodynamics says that in a closed environment, when one energy changes in form to another form, entropy is the result. 
disorder. That's what entropy means. That is, we violate the second law of thermodynamics by believing that natural selection is positive and mutations are positive, and the result is this that violates the second law of thermodynamics that says rather than order, we should have expected disorder. But since we have order, we should say there has to be a creator. There has to be a clockmaker that created all of this who is worthy of worship. Third, we're going to see that Paul says that it's not only the creation, but it's the law of God that is written on our hearts that we suppress and we ignore and we violate. That God has made his law on our hearts to know what is right and wrong. And that conscience that he's given us declares within us that there is a creator worthy of worship. And finally, cursory, we need to understand that without the gospel, nobody can be saved. That's why Paul writes this in Romans 10, verses 13 to 15. Like many of you, I have this memorized, but it always comes out wrong, so I am going to read it. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on whom they have not believed? And how will they believe in whom they have not heard? And how they, will they hear without a preacher? And how will the preacher go if he is not sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. We can't believe if somebody isn't sent to declare the pure gospel. Salvation needs the gospel. No wonder, Matthew 9, 37 and 38 says, Therefore pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest field. The wheat is ripe under the harvest, and God expects, demands you and I. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be ye reconciled to God. He wants, he calls for us to share the gospel locally and globally, and to embrace the truth that, that he wants and demands to use us to share his truth with others. With these four initial points, we can go back to our original question. Can someone come to God in heaven without knowing Jesus Christ? No. That's the answer. You say, well, it's not fair. If you don't know Jesus, you're condemned to hell for not knowing Jesus. That's not exactly what we saw last week. You remember 2 Thessalonians 1.8 says that there are two groups, not one, that spend a crisis eternity in a literal eternal hell. In flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God, group one, and on those who do not obey the gospel, of our Lord Jesus, group two. And of course, group two is more culpable than group one because they have more light. But both groups, tragically, will be separated from God eternally in hell. 
Why? Because they suppress the truth. They suppress the truth for what can be known about God is plain to them. They do not honor him. They become futile in their thinking. Their foolish hearts are darkened. They exchange the glory for the immortal God for images. This truth is why evangelism is so critical. I'm told that there are 7 billion people on the planet. I don't know. I didn't count them. The very best, most generous, probably ridiculously generous uh, belief is that 3 billion people profess Christ. That leaves 4 billion that do not. There are 680 languages with the completion of Scripture. 680. There is another 1,500 languages that has the New Testament completed. So we're up to about 2,300 languages. There's another 1,000 languages that have enough completed that people could definitely know the gospel and know about Christ. So we're up to 3,300. There's another 1,000 languages being worked on right now. So we're up to 4,300 languages. And praise God. Some of you know Richard and Kathy McAvoy. And you know that their son Stephen is in Papua New Guinea. And right now, right now, he has finished the New Testament in a language. It has been approved and they're celebrating it. Kirsten is there in Papua New Guinea to celebrate that. Can you imagine? Can you imagine there's only 2,300 of these? And one of them belongs to a son of a Highland attender. That's unbelievable. Wow. Wow. But you know how many languages we know of in the world? 7,099. That means 2,800 languages. Three and a half percent of the world's population does not have any gospel light. In their own language. 2,800 languages. I don't mean to be offensive. But I want to make a statement that I just think is true. I think sometimes we are so ethnocentric, so myopic. English has several hundred translations. And yet sometimes we say... If you don't read the NASB, or you don't read the King James, or you don't read the ESV, which, by the way, is God's version, if you don't read the NIV, if you don't read this or that, you can't really be in obedience in the house of the Lord. And we have 2,800 languages three and a half percent of the world's population that doesn't have scripture in their language. And we fight over such silliness. How offensive to our God. How offensive. Well, back to the text. Let me look at a few finer points. It starts out by saying the wrath of God. There's two words in the New Testament that speak of anger. And by the way, 
Apologies to Andy Stanley, who seems to think that wrath is only an Old Testament topic. Uh, we got it right here in Romans 1. Do you know how many times the Bible says that God has anger or wrath? 600. This is not something that just occurs here or there. It's all over Scripture. In the New Testament, there are two words. The first is thumos, from which we derive the word thermometer or thermos. Those things hold what? Hot. Thumos is hot. It can be often capricious. It can often be arbitrary. It can often be heated and cruel and malicious. And that's not the word used. Thumas anger is the anger sometimes of an out-of-control husband towards his wife or an out-of-control wife towards her husband or parents towards their kids or teens towards their parents. Almost always, almost always, it's sinful. But the other word, the one in our text, is orhe. It's calm. It's measured. It's settled. It's never capricious. It's never arbitrary. It is the right discipline response, the measured discipline response to action. The wrath of God is because we have suppressed the truth. That word suppress, katoxenton, means to deliberately reject. The glories are explained and proclaimed by the creation, and we suppress it. I think of Psalm 8, or what I'm going to read, Psalm 19, verse 1. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky proclaims His handiwork. I think of a hymn. It goes like this, O Lord my God, and I in awesome wonder, Consider all the worlds thy hands have made. When I see the stars, I hear the rolling thunder. We got that the last couple days. Thy power throughout the universe displayed. We sing that hymn because it talks about the creation and the natural revelation that God has given us that proclaims that there has to be a creator who is worthy of worship. But beyond that, God has taken this truth and he's written it on our hearts. Let me read from Romans 2, 14 and 15, a beautiful passage. For when Gentiles, he's using the word for unbeliever. For when unbelievers who do not have the law, nomos, when it is not further modified, probably refers to the Ten Commandments. So when unbelievers who don't have the Ten Commandments, by nature... Do what those law or ten commands require. They are a law to themselves, even though they don't have the law. And we would ask, how do they obey the law when they don't have the law? They show, verse 15, that the work of the law is written on their hearts. Well, their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. In other words, God has created us innately to know the Ten Commandments, so that people groups the world over, whether they have the law or not, they innately know murder is wrong, and stealing is wrong, and adultery is wrong. 
and honoring parents is right and worshiping the creator is right and idolatry is wrong, yet we suppress that truth so we are without excuse. It's John Locke, the 17th century philosopher, who said that we are born with a tabula rasa, a blank slate. Scripture would say not so. Not so. We are born with the law of God written on our hearts. It was Pascal, the 17th century mathematician, theologian, and philosopher, who said he believes that every heart is created with a God-shaped vacuum. We are created in such a way that we yearn to know who has created this. And yet we suppress that truth. Pascal agrees with Scripture. Ecclesiastes 3.11 says that eternity is written on our hearts. God created us to know that there is a Redeemer and there is a Creator. And if we don't suppress the truth, the Bible says if we seek Him, we will find Him. So the answer to the question, what about the fate of the unevangelized, those who have not heard the name of Christ, the biblical answer is that they will spend a crisis eternity separated from God in a literal eternal hell because the truth about God in natural revelation has been revealed and they suppress it and the law of God is written on their hearts and they suppress it. But let's push back for a moment. What if, what if they don't suppress it? Scripture doesn't give us a lot of hope that way, but we have some examples. What if they don't suppress it? Wouldn't that be very much akin to Acts 10 and Cornelius? Here we have this, this man who is a pagan who knows very little. He has very little light, and yet Acts 10.4 says he offers alms and prayers. He doesn't even know who he's praying to, and the alms and prayers go up to the Lord. And God comes to his choice servant, Peter, not exactly a willing servant, and says, Peter, I got an assignment for you. We're going to do a little bit of evangelism. And I bet Peter said, count me in. And he said, <laughs> it's a Gentile, and he's probably hanging out in Caesarea Maritima, bitten by, built by Herod. And it's a place that, well, there's idols all over the place, but you're, you're good. And, and you remember, Peter said, no way. I would never go to what's unclean. He knows full well that if he goes to that place, he will be ceremonially unclean for a little while. He won't even be able to go to the Sabbath worship. And you remember, God gives him a vision and a dream with all sorts of unkosher things. And God says, eat. And Peter says, no way. And God says, don't call unclean what I have called clean. And he's sent and Cornelius comes to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. He and his family, he didn't suppress all of the truth. And God made himself available. If you seek me, you will find me. I think of Acts chapter 8. Here we have an Ethiopian eunuch. He's in where today we would call Gaza. Heavily populated today. Utterly unpopulated back in the first century. And somehow he has a scroll. He has a scroll, I'm, I'm fairly confident, it's Isaiah 53. It's the suffering Jesus, written 700 years before Christ. And by the way, 
We have Dead Sea Scrolls that far predate Christ from Isaiah 53 that tell what Christ is going to do. You can't really deny that prophecy, can you? Because we have scrolls older than Christ on earth that tell us what Christ will do. And he's a lamb led to the slaughter. And like a sheep before his shears is silent, so he did not open his mouth. And Jesus suffered and died and rose again. And so we have this Ethiopian who's reading the scrolls and he has no idea what's going on. And 95 miles north in Samaria, we have Philip. And there's a revival going on. People are coming to Jesus. I mean, it's probably the highlight of Philip's life. He doesn't even want to go home at night. He just wants the revival to continue and continue. And God says to him and says, Hey, uh, Philip, I want you to go 95 miles south to Gaza. Where, where's that? You know, in the middle of nowhere. I got one man. One man, Lord. Many are coming to the Lord. This is a bad idea. But people matter to God, and therefore they must matter to us. And he travels 95 miles, and he explains the scroll. And the Ethiopian comes to Christ and actually is baptized in a wadi, a flash flood area that holds water about three weeks out of the year. If you seek me, you will find me. Some of you know the name Dr. David Garrison. He's a professor at the University of Chicago, not exactly a bastion of evangelicalism. He wrote a book, The Wind in the House of Islam, heavily footnoted. He took three and a half years of his life, traveled a quarter million miles. He, like many, have heard of many, many Muslims in closed access countries coming to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. And so he went and interviewed in various parts of closed access countries. How did you come to Christ? There is no gospel witness. And they talked about visions and dreams and angelic beings. They didn't suppress the truth, and God found a way. And they hear the gospel in a vision or a dream, an angelic vision. It's heavily footnoted. It's a scholastic book at a major university of multitudes in closed-access countries coming to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. If you will seek me, you will find me. But not everyone who doesn't know Christ is in Somalia or Indonesia. Some are in central Wisconsin. Some are in Weston or Marathon or Merrill or Edgar or Rothschild or Schofield or the surrounding areas. Some might even be here today and we're thankful that you're here. And Jesus said, call upon the name of the Lord and you will be saved. He says this in John 3, 36. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son does not have life, and the wrath of God is upon him. Turn from the righteous discipline of the Lord. He offers salvation freely, freely, generously. His son paid the price, which is death, 
conquered death, rose from the grave, and offers salvation to all of us. May we by faith believe in Jesus. And we who already know Jesus, may we go and share salvation by faith in Christ with others. May we bring the good news of Christ locally and globally to a world that needs Jesus. We need Jesus. Seek Jesus. Let's pray. Father God, uh, I pray that each of us here would take seriously the words of your inspired and errant text, that we would see incredible love offered, salvation purchased, a desire that we would come to know Jesus. And if someone does not know Jesus, I pray that even at this moment, by faith, they might ask Christ, your son, to come into one's heart, to forgive, to cleanse, to become Savior and Lord. And for we who know your son, may we share salvation with all because people matter to you and therefore all people must matter to us. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen.